Hello everyone and welcome to The Lisa Burke Show and thanks for joining me. Thank you also for the feedback from last week's show and it was lovely to get to know some of you in person at the network's Pearl anniversary last weekend. And just a reminder, this show will play out on Saturdays at 11, Sundays at noon and will then also be available as a podcast as before. Please do subscribe and follow the podcast as it lets me know where in the world you're listening from and then I can do my best to find topics related to you. Now today I I have a guest that has travelled from London to deliver the Bridge Forum Dialogue Lecture. We're recording this on Thursday the 10th of March. And to give you a little introduction to my guest, Tom Fletcher, he is the Principal of Hartford College at the University of Oxford, a post he's held since September 2020. From 2007 to 11, he was the Foreign Policy Advisor to three UK Prime Ministers. 2011 to 15, Tom was the UK's ambassador to Lebanon. In 2016, he led a review of British diplomacy for the Foreign Office in the UK. 2017 saw a review of the future of the United Nations for the UN Secretary General. 2018, he authored a report on the skills the next generation need to thrive in the 21st century. 2018, he also founded the Foundation for Opportunity. Recently, he was also a visiting professor at New York University and now to his books. He wrote The Naked Diplomat, Power and Politics in the Digital Age, published in 2016. And this year has a wonderful book entitled 10 Survival Skills for a World in Flux. And Tom, I know you also went off to sit in an Italian castle for three weeks and pumped out another fiction novel as yet to be released, I believe. So welcome, Tom. It's amazing to have you here. Thank you so much, Lisa. I feel I feel exhausted just listening to that. List. I feel exhausted listening to it. I don't know how you managed to fit this life into I, your young years. I'm not sure at all. I don't think I did half of those things, but I'm going to claim credit for them now. You're incredibly modest. Now, I have to just dive in, first of all, to the book that you've come partly to talk about at the Bridge Forum Dialogue, 10 Survival Skills for a World in Flux. You wrote this coming out of COVID, during COVID. And now, of course, we have the Ukraine situation. Given your background, I have to start there. How do you see it unfolding, you know, this, this war that we are really living every day in the news? I mean, it's incredibly troubling. And if, and actually, uh, for those of us who lived through the Syria conflict, and it was just one hour up the road from where I was in, in Lebanon as ambassador, so much of this is very familiar. I mean, the way that Putin and his allies in Syria just flattened cities, including schools and hospitals. You know, the numbers that were displaced, numbers of Syrians who were on the move. Lebanon had one million refugees in a country of four million. Can you imagine if that was in the UK? That's 15, 20 million people uh, in just the UK. So it was a, a really uh, difficult time, horrific time for those under the, the bombs. And sadly, we're seeing it happening again now with the Ukrainians. I think Putin himself has been really surprised by the level of resistance and the resilience, the, the kind of courage of the Ukrainians uh, so far has just been uh, inspirational. I think he's also been surprised at the way in which the Ukrainians have managed to dominate the information space. You know, they've really understood how to use modern media, how to use social media to take their case out to the global public. And as a result, public opinion has driven government policy in the West rather than the other way around. And so Putin is, is losing in that space. But of course, he's, you know, he's, he's winning in that hard power space, you know, in the tanks and the military effort. And that's, uh, that's pretty terrifying. I think the key thing is to slow him down as much as possible to make it as hard as possible for him to try and do the things he really doesn't want us to do, undermining him at home, uh, driving wedges between Russia and China, he really fears 
that the Chinese will start to become uh, more critical and then all that support to the Ukrainian people and then targeting those around him. I think if we carry on getting those things right, then there's a chance of, uh, of holding Ukraine together and helping them stand up. You've mentioned so many points already there in, in your first answer. And I want to go back actually to what you mentioned about Syria and the displacement of people, because there has been some people who are noting how many refugees from Ukraine are coming into people's homes literally across Europe. It's happening here in Luxembourg. No, it's happening to a lesser extent in the UK, but we'll park that for now. But that wasn't the case with the Syrian refugees. Do you see a difference here? And, well, there is a difference. Why? So actually in the in the region, the countries were incredibly kind, incredibly welcoming to Syrian refugees. The Lebanese, the Jordanians, the Turks. And then a lot of, a lot of Syrian refugees then came up through Europe and Germany was incredible. I mean, I think it was one of the great defining moments of Angela Merkel's time as Chancellor was the generous welcome she gave to refugees and, and the way that she took on public opinion at home. You know, I wish more countries, and I would put my country very high on that list, would show that same sort of welcome. We can't just help refugees in the countries and the, na- the neighbours of those countries where they are. We've got to also take them into our into our homes and communities as well. I think, by the way, this will be one of the great peace processes of the 21st century, of the 2020s. It won't just be peace between states, but also peace between host communities and migrant communities, because this is just the beginning. We're going to have a massive wave of migration driven by climate change, and we're all going to have to become much, much better at living together, much, much better at, at coexisting. I know you know about peace processes because you've spent time in Northern Ireland literally sitting there and witnessing them. And I'm very happy to hear your optimism about it because at the moment for many people watching the news, in fact, I know people who have stopped watching the news because it feels so pessimistic. But before I move on to that, I just wanted to move back to things you said about the media. And it does feel like um, the media that we can absorb here in, let's call it the West, um, seems very open. And the Ukrainians have been very vocal in a fantastic way. Uh, We hear a lot, we see a lot. The media within Russia is quite different. And literally last night I was called by a friend here, a Russian friend who was helping Ukrainian families here. And she wanted me to use a certain app on my phone for communication because she said this information will not be sold to the Russians, but I can't use this, this and this because they will get that information. My mother is living there and I don't want any of my family to end up in prison for 15 mm. years. It's a it's a terrifying um, environment at home. And of course, you know, when you look at the diet of news that people in Russia are actually getting, uh, they've got no idea often what's really going on on the ground. I mean, it's why Putin is able to keep that stranglehold uh, in Russia. I remember someone saying to me in the Middle East that, you know, in a similar context when the internet was being shut down, and they said, if you build a wall around our internet, we'll build an internet around your wall. Often the tech can find ways of getting through. And ultimately, I'm a real optimist about the power of the smartphone actually to join people up and to enable a different kind of, of global coexistence. But I used to say something a bit silly in Syria. I used to go around saying the most powerful weapon in the Middle East is a smartphone. And I believed it. You know, we were going through the Arab Spring, 2011, 2015. Countries were changing. Young people were coming together, rising up. And there was a spirit of enormous optimism. Well, it was. It was the Blackberry that happened, that that, that took over. And that's what happened in Cairo, the Arab yeah. Spring. And it spread so fast. Mm-hmm. But actually, in that era, in the end, despite my optimism, the most powerful weapon wasn't a smartphone. 
In the end, it was the chemical weapons of Bashar al-Assad. It was the threat of nuclear weapons from countries like Iran. It was old-school hard power from militias on the ground. I'm still optimistic in the long term, but you know we're still in the very, very early days of understanding how to use these new tools and understanding the ways in which they'll change politics and society around us. Well, that's a really important point because uh, we have this soft and we have the hard power and wars are fought not only on the ground, like you say, they're fought with satellite communications, they're fought, yes, in the air, in the sea and all the rest of it that we've seen before. But politicians, again, we've seen in the news, we have all sorts of sanctions coming in, finance, energy, even cultural sanctions. And your talk tonight is entitled Diplomacy and Power in a Technological Age. So... On that, just give us a summary of, of your main points, because I think they are linked to what we're talking about. So my, my concern is actually, if you step back from, from Putin, from Afghanistan, from COVID, you remember COVID? You know, it seems, <laughs> it seems, seems like it was... It seems days. Um, yeah. Um, Donald Trump, Brexit, all these big things we've been worrying about in the last five, ten years. Actually, if you step back from those, you know, while we've been building driverless cars, we've actually built a driverless world. And... I think one thing that is particularly destabilizing for people and gives people this sense of, of just uncertainty and flux is, is that sense that no one's really in charge. I think, you know, 10, 20 years ago, our parents' generation would have thought, well, I'm sure governments are, are working on this. I'm sure we can trust the government or we can trust the UN. And one thing we've learned, and social media has helped us understand this, is actually we can't wait for governments to fix these problems. I think behind all these sorts of events, there are three massive trends that we have to understand. One is the rise of distrust. Anything that looks like authority, you know, whether it's uh, doctors or teachers, not just governments and the media, but, you know, we'll go and check Dr. Google after we go to the doctor's surgery. And, you know, I'm on the WhatsApp group for my 10-year-olds, the parents in my 10-year-olds class, you know, anything that looks like authority is somehow less trusted at the moment. And that makes it much, much harder to govern, much, much harder to respond to those challenges. So first challenge is, are we gaining or losing trust as individuals, as businesses, as, as countries? Second big trend is actually about the perception of inequality. I don't know if you've seen this, that brilliant um, uh, clip on YouTube where scientists give two capuchin monkeys both a bit more food, but one a little bit more than the other. And the one who's not got quite as much, even though he's got more food, rips apart the cage to try and attack the other one, attack the scientists. And in a way, we're seeing that in the rise of extremism across Europe, across the Middle East, in America, of course, this perception that people have that life's a bit unfair. And so we've got to get on the right side of that. Are we doing things that are increasing or decreasing inequality? And then the third massive one is this trend around technological change. And we're going to go through as much tech change in the next century as the last 43 you know, I mentioned driverless cars. That's like going from cave painting to driverless cars in, you know, the lifetime of our kids. Yeah, the, the, I mean, the movement has been extremely fast. And so think about what the internet did to politics and society and just speed that up. It's no wonder that we feel so fragile, so unstable. And so we've got to get on the right side of those, of those trends. And then I believe we've got to learn a bunch of new survival skills that we don't actually learn at school anymore. Uh, if we're really going to thrive and if we're going to ensure that the we stay on the right side of automation, if we're going to ensure that the robots work for us and that we don't end up working for the robots. Mm -hmm. Again, as always, you've got a, a multi-pronged answer here. So I'm just going to dive back to one at the beginning, which is um, the the distrust we have in politicians. And 
we might feel that they can't change things. But perhaps that's also to do with the fact that in some societies, their terms of office are short. But the things we need to fix, global warming, for instance, climate change, I can think of a whole host of them. Where does our energy come from right now? They are not going to be solved in four to five years. These are really long term projects. So how do you balance that? You've you've worked with governments. You've been inside it. You've been a diplomat. You know, people want to be voted into power, but then they have to make changes that will last many generations forward. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I mean, I worked for the last paper and pen prime minister, Tony Blair, and then for the first email prime minister, Gordon Brown, used to get emails from Gordon at three in the morning. And then for the first iPad prime minister, David Cameron. So tech was changing government, government, governance right around us then. And I used to always think when I worked in Downing Street, I'd get closer and closer to the centre of power and suddenly I'd find a room full of really smart, probably quite cynical people moving things around on, on a map and saying, you know, buy gas, sell this, you know, invade so-and-so. And of course, I got right to the heart of government till I was the last person in the room. And all I was trying to do was to was to get stories on Sky News, you know, <laughs> um, get stuff on the ticker that was running when you were presenting. And, um, you know, in those days, it was 140 words. You know, what's the story we can get to try and fill the news agenda, to kind of keep, keep feeding the beast, we'd say, to keep the media, you know, off our backs a bit. Now it's 140, 280 characters. We've sped up that much. So I think there's this real challenge that we haven't digitalized democracy, our way of governing, our way of communicating with the public, uh, and we're becoming less and less strategic. Now, fortunately, you know, you're a scientist. We've got people working on vaccines. We've got people working on the great scientific projects who have a longer bandwidth, but people in government don't. And, sorry, another multi-pronged answer. Yeah, um, wonderful answer. <laughs> but, you know, I really felt this in Syria with Putin. 2013, I was sat on the terrace at the residence in Beirut, and I got a call from successor in Downing Street, to say, start the evacuation, we'll be bombing on Tuesday. He's crossed the red line, he's used chemical weapons, get everyone out. I had two days to get everyone out. By the time we got to that point of the evacuation, we'd already changed our policy. Because we were playing poker against Putin, he had this long-term perspective. You know, he's already been there 10 years by then, he's been there 10 years since. And he could see our cards. Because of the parliamentary debate, because of the media debate in the UK, he knew exactly what... The conversation was at home, and he had a pretty good idea we weren't going to actually bluff him. You know, so we were playing poker in, in a situation where he could see our hand. And you know, overall, our values, our system, give us a real advantage. But there are aspects of foreign policy and statecraft where actually we're sometimes at a disadvantage. So what can the media do better? I know there's all sorts of different types of media, but when it comes to politics, before everything kicked off in the Ukraine, there was an awful lot going on about whether the parties were permissible or not, and that suddenly just stopped. And we had, you know, a few weeks of that conversation. And why? Why are we having those conversations when there should be much more important conversations going on about energy, for instance, or geopolitics, for example? It's really hard to say, isn't it? I, I mean, I think social media is part of it and the fear of missing out. You know, we all want to be in the conversation of the day and that conversation has to be constantly refreshed. I think there is a real need to hold leaders to account and we've got a, a bunch of leaders at the moment who need particularly to be held uh, to account. And it's good that we did that over the parties. But it is interesting that, you know, we, we seem to have this inability to really t- take a deep breath and take a step back and think about 
these longer term challenges. You know, what will artificial intelligence do to our jobs, the, our kids' jobs, to their lives? Climate change. I mean, my goodness, where do we start with uh, with climate change? The next huge uh, migration, the next pandemic. Are we thinking about the next pandemic, the next global economic crisis? We don't put enough time and energy into those issues. We were all sat there, 2009, January 2009, the leaders of the world, the 23 most powerful people in the world on paper. Uh, and I was the only non-leader in the room. All sat there in churches, well, Churchill's old room in number 10. At the end of the G20 summit, don't ask me why the 23, not 20. It's a long story. Um, and, you know, this was after the last financial crisis. And at the end of the meeting, Gordon Brown, who was chairing it, said, has anyone got anything else to say? And, and Obama was quite new at the time, Barack Obama. And he, he was still a rock star. You know, we were just uh, in awe of the guy, uh, as, as I still am. And he just tapped the microphone and said, guys, if we don't find a way to fix some of these problems in the international system, if we don't find a way to work more effectively together, the next crisis will be much, much worse. And of course, everyone nodded and said, yes, you're, you're exactly right, President, you know, off we go. Nothing changed. And as a result, that international system has fragmented even further. And, you know, we saw that with COVID. We're seeing it uh, with Afghanistan. We're seeing it with Ukraine. It becomes harder and harder for us to, to work collectively as a global community. We've gone through this time of social distancing, but also of national distancing. So he made that observation, which perhaps he wasn't the only one to observe in their minds. Did he have a solution? Well, I think he, he was really thinking that we, we should do more to reform the international institutions, IMF, World Bank, uh, the UN. Of course, America, before and after Obama, had been largely responsible for degrading those institutions. Mm -hmm. You know, the war in Iraq completely undermined the UN Security Council. Donald Trump then turned up and started vandalizing these institutions orphaned the institutions that were created originally by by the US. So I think that was his specific thought. And that was certainly the agenda that we had in number 10, uh, particularly it was a big focus of, uh, of Gordon Brown's. But then, of course, we got swept up. As you say, the next story comes along. The day after the, the summit, one of the spin doctors in number 10 resigned and the media just went woof, straight to that story and we were distracted. And that sadly is... is is, the, is, is my experience at the centre of government, that it, we were constantly being buffeted by these short-term challenges and we couldn't really find the space to, to think about the long-term, which is why I think it's more important that we as individuals do that. And it's why in this book I'm trying to say, look, create the time yourselves to think, what do I need to learn? What do my kids need to learn? And to really not get into kind of forecasting, like being a soothsayer or something. It's not about watching our star signs and trying to work out what will happen next, but just spending much more time, being much more attentive to thinking about what will the world look like in 10 years, in 20 years, and in 50 years, and, and a bit less time just doom scrolling uh, mm -hmm. on Twitter. Yeah, in our algorithmic bubbles. You do talk to a number of futurists, actually, in your book, and they, like you say, there are patterns, there are trends. And actually, you even mentioned a few things about Russia and Putin in the book. And... Um, it's not out of place, actually, what you've said. I wanted to just go back to what you mentioned about the UN, and, and I'll throw NATO in there as well. Also, you did a, a review. Is the UN, NATO, are they fit for purpose at the moment? I fear they're not. I mean, NATO is having quite a good run, actually, and, and this is a kind of very NATO crisis, and they're responding well with real unity and coherence. Of course, it's not yet a kind of military conflict for them, so we don't know how that would hold together 
in a military scenario. I think, you know, I'm a, ba- I'm a massive fan of the UN. You know, many of my closest friends, people I admire, most in the world, are, you know, running these UN organisations and they're passionate, committed, driven people. And thank goodness they're there, you know, walking towards this sound of conflict so that we don't have to. But those institutions have been really degraded over time, under-resourced, under-supported. You know, look at the UN Security Council, five permanent members. China is sort of to one side, Russia actively undermining it, America sort of doing the hokey-cokey, in and out, one day for it if it's if it's aligned with their view, and then the next day against it and vetoing things. And then the other two permanent members are Britain and France, and we're going through our own okay, Brexit crises uh, at the moment. So... There's a real need to renew those international uh, organisations, to bring in other countries. You know, we can't pretend that the five countries that, you know, were in charge at the end of the Second World War should still be running the world uh, in that way. So we have to make them much, much more representative and be much more humble about our relative place in the world. Then the onus is on us, as you mentioned before, to become good citizens of the world. And as you also write, it's one of your main leitmotifs, to become a good ancestor. So how could one, should one, work towards becoming a good citizen of the world, a global citizen, and by dint of that become a good ancestor, hopefully? So I think there are very practical things that we can do to be a citizen of everywhere. You know, the opposite of what Theresa May rather unfortunately called citizen of nowhere, global citizen. Um, and actually, some of the most interesting academic work we did was about how do you actually teach that in a classroom? And how do you assess it? Because unless you can find a way of testing those skills, then as parents, we won't take them seriously enough and, and schools won't take them seriously enough. Universities won't take them seriously enough. So one of the very practical things you can do is to try and understand your own filter. To really think about the Instagram filter through which you see the world. And if you can see that you have a filter, that's an amazing start, that your worldview is not the only one. Uh, if you can really start to understand other people's perspectives, their filters, and zoom out from a situation, it's, it's one of those things we're sort of taught gradually by osmosis uh, to develop as diplomats, is that ability to zoom out and understand people's filters. Then I think you develop more of the antennae, the curiosity to fit in in other, in other cultures. You know, you'd have done it in, in, in Abu Dhabi, I'm sure you're doing it in Luxembourg here. You ask the right questions. You know, you, you, you want to understand the culture in which you're living. And that is a great start to being a, a, a good global citizen. I, I hope I can do it, but I'm also thinking about my daughters who look at their social media feeds and I hope they have intelligence, but they will be affected by what they see on social media, unfortunately. And I do see that in girls, social media is a big thing. And in boys, it tends to be the gaming. Yeah. But they are affected by that. And they haven't quite developed that filter. Yeah, it's true. And and we still don't know what that's actually doing to their brains. And we know what it's doing to ours because we can feel our attention spans getting shorter and shorter. I was very struck. I went to the uh, to Silicon Valley to visit the schools in which the, the big tech emperors are teaching their their kids and the tech is very much working for them. The kids are doing all the things that make them human. They're doing creativity and art and problem solving and, and group work. And, and they're not constrained by the tech. The tech is there. They're not saying, don't touch the tech. You know, you can't really exist in the world at the moment without having an, an awareness of tech. But they're really able to use it. It's working for them. They're not working for the tech. And I think there's a sliding doors moment where people who are able to, to learn in that way will be the great success stories of the 21st century. And the danger is 
that the rest of us, whose kids are maybe being more manipulated by the tech, end up basically working for them. But the most successful tech companies, of which those children are sitting there at school in Silicon Valley, um, part of their success is to be able to reel us in and for us to just sit there and scroll through. So children also, and it really is children I'm thinking of here, and adults, have to be able to know when to stop how to stop and to not yeah. do that mindless scrolling. You, we, we do need boundaries around it. I think a lot of people have found, you know, we're recording this what, two weeks into, this, into the, the, the Ukraine crisis and I've spent a lot more time on, on Twitter than I should have done over those two weeks. But for a reason. Yeah, I mean, I, mean it's, I really do want to understand what's happening on the ground and think, are there things from my experience that I can bring to that conversation that can, that can help? But also a lot of it is just a kind of displacement activity. It's anxiety going into the phone in that way. When actually, you know, I was forced on the way here, an hour and a half, two hours on the plane, to step back, listen to music, let my brain rest a bit. And it was it was wonderful. I mean, what a tonic. Yeah, and I think you need it given everything that you do. <laughs> um, I wanted to actually just bring out one of the, the quotes. I loved this on page 61 of your book. It was Leonardo da Vinci's to-do list. So now where does it begin? Uh, it includes his aspirations to measure and draw Milan, find a decent book on its churches, get the master of arithmetic to show him how to square a triangle, ask a Florentine merchant how they go on ice at Flanders, ask a maestro how mortars are positioned on bastions by day or night, examine another maestro's crossbow, find an expert to explain how to repair a lock, canal and mill, and ask another about the measurement of the I mean, that to-do list on one day is... Extraordinary, isn't it? Shocking, but I think yours might be similar. So much of it is just about asking the right questions. I got that list, actually. It's a brilliant book on how to be curious, using the example of Leonardo da Vinci. And there's a lot more detail about the way he would try and solve problems and so on. I think, you know, ultimately, these survival skills come down to a balance between head, hand and heart. Between knowledge, you know, what we have to learn, hand, the skills, what we actually... the crafts we have to learn and then the values the heart bit and for the heart it's to be kind to be curious and to be brave and right at the heart of that is that curiosity i think if we can bring along a generation of curious young people then actually we'll have done our job to come back to your question about being a good ancestor that is the work of a good ancestor is to pass on the very best of what we've learned from from our ancestors to our descendants but not to pass on the worst to work out what are the things I mustn't pass on and what are the things I must pass on, to work out what must I forgive, what must I seek forgiveness for, what are the inherited injustices and inequalities uh, in the world that I must try to deal with so I don't leave them to the next generation. I think if we do those things, then we will be good ancestors. There's a very practical exercise that I do with my students where we try to write out our CV. And in a way, you read out you know, the stuff on my CV but actually, the more that we can live a life that is about what's on our, in our eulogy and not on our CV, the closer we'll be to finding our true sense of purpose and to being a good ancestor. If you think about what would someone stand up and say about me at the end of my life, they're not going to say I was a visiting professor at New York University uh, or that I chaired this or wrote this book or whatever. I hope they'll say I'm, I was kind and curious and brave. I was loyal to my friends. You know, I was a good dad. You know, those sorts of things. And... I think if we do that, then it makes it easier for us to almost have a, a kind of GPS guiding us to how to live a more purposeful life. 
And value-filled life, yeah. And I wanted to move on to um, your work really as an author and a thinker and an educator now. And you have been an educator for some time with your work at New York University as well, in which you did a huge survey, in fact. So would you like to tell our listeners about that survey you did, about what students are not being taught, which in some ways is the basis of this book? Yeah, yeah, very much so. Um, So I was actually a failed teacher you're not a failed anything. I was. I, uh, d- I doubt that. Uh, so I was very a very bad much. teacher. I had to give up teaching. I, I, mean, I was a failed Oxford applicant. Uh, I was a failed lead singer in a band called Freshy Squeezed, which I don't think you've heard of. They they were not on the CV. And, uh, it wouldn't be for lack of uh, fame that I wouldn't have heard of them. They no. were very much ahead of their time. Uh, uh, you need to try again. I was a failed door-to-door salesman uh, and I was a failed boxer. Uh, I had a fight in front of 3,000 people in Kenya. That's not failure. Um but the teaching bit of it, um, so when, when, I, when I finished that job as ambassador in Lebanon, I was actually very conscious of actually a much more serious failure, which was that on, on my watch, you know, during my time as ambassador, Syria had just collapsed. Yeah, but that was not because of you. No, but, you know, but there were decisions that all of us took in that period uh, that contributed to that. But also we made promises about getting kids into school that we never lived up to as a government and as an international community. We said every Syrian will go to school. So I, when I left, I tried to work on that. I tried to get that million Syrians into school. And we got maybe 200, 250,000 in, but that's, you know, still three quarters that weren't in school. Um, and that, Syrians in Syria or displaced Syrians? Displaced uh, in the region. And that journey led me to a, a refugee camp in the Bekaa Valley. And, and a, a Syrian girl who said to me, but what, what do I really need to learn? Zainab. Zainab, exactly. Mm. You know, what do I actually need to learn? And she was with her brother, Ahmed, who was drawing kind of stick rockets, falling on stick men. And she was saying, you know, he wants to go, to, he wants to draw rockets that will take him to the moon, which aren't pointed at him. What does he need to learn? And I realised I didn't actually have an answer to that. My answer had been just get to school, get to school. And yet, when we did look into it, two years, we found that most kids in the world are learning the wrong things in the wrong way. They're learning stuff that will be, that will be automated. They're memorising stuff when you don't need to memorise stuff when you've got this extraordinary smartphone superpower in your pocket. Einstein said, never memorise anything that you can look up in a book. And you could now say, never memorise anything that you can look up on Wikipedia. So that really led me, I I sat there with the students and said, right, if we were to have a blank page. And this is the students at New York University. At New York University. And what what should be on that curriculum? What do you need to learn that we're not teaching you? And, And they were the ones that designed this kind of curriculum about how to find purpose, how to look after your mental health, your physical health. They were, they were much more interested in learning about the history of having a sense of global politics, not just a list of the country, the, the wars that their country happened to win. They were much keener to learn about the relationship with the planet. They were much keener to learn how to learn because they had this sense that they'll have to keep adjusting to different, uh, to different roles in the future. Lifelong learning, which is another of your life, focuses. Exactly. You know, universities at the moment are, are sabbatical from life. You kind of go there for three years to take a break from the real world, where actually we all need to be learning. I, I did a speech recently at Copenhagen University, and there were 70 year olds in the audience because in Denmark they give everyone three weeks of free learning every year all through their lives. Brilliant, brilliant. We should all be doing that. Um, so that helped to form this curriculum for the course I taught at NYU. And then I basically went around and talked to world leaders, TV people, uh, academics military leaders, business leaders, activists, everyone I could talk to really, and said to them basically, what do you wish you'd known when you were 14? And that then became the book. That became this new curriculum. 
The other source, by the way, for that kind of, I suppose, that, that sort of line of questioning was that when I was in number 10, I collected a book of advice for my son. I was going to ask you, ah. I was going to ask you that lucky Charlie, tell us about this book. He is so lucky. As I think it was Obama said, you either are going to learn a lot from this or you'll make a lot from this. <laughs> Definitely. So he, um, I, you know, the origin of that was I felt terrible because I was spending so little time with Charlie because I was just on the road the whole time with the PM and it was just relentless and exhausting. And I can look back at it now and see the value of it. At the time, it was, you know, I felt terrible that I wasn't spending that time with my young son. And so I'd have this, basically a notebook. And whenever we met world leaders or interesting people, I would ask them to write one page of advice. And I said, look, I'll give it to Charlie when he's 14. And he was 14 last December. Uh, so that was, you know, 10 years away at the time. And Bill Clinton, the Dalai Lama, Desmond Tutu, Nelson Mandela... Barack Obama, J.K. Rowling, Chris Hoy. Do you remember Chris Hoy, the amazing cyclist? I do. You know, Steve Redgrave, the Olympian. Um, all these different people wrote their advice in it. So it's an amazing book of these gems of advice. My, my granddad wrote in it before he died. You know, that was the most important one to me. Um, but ultimately, you can boil it all down. And it's, it is basically be kind, be curious, be brave. Is there anyone in particular whose words just resonated with you and gave you goosebumps? All of them in different ways. Um, but actually, I mean, much of it, much of it was just sort of practical life advice. J.K. Rowling said never take up smoking, which is probably pretty good advice. <laughs> good it's advice. a nightmare to, to give it up. Um, Carla Bruni said, you know, play more with your dad now, you know, while you can, because when you're older, you won't want to so much and, you know, you'll miss it and he'll miss it. So keep, keep look out for your dad, basically. Uh, but lots of them were, were about not just having a vision, but then working hard to realise it. You know, uh, the good thing was that they weren't just saying, oh, just dream big dreams. It was actually about getting out there and, and realising them. And I think the one, there was one very poignant one, in a way it's even more poignant now, with the situation in Russia from Mikhail Gorbachev, where he, was, he wrote to him about, he wrote two pages about l try, and, try and live a life that you'll look back on and be proud. In a way it comes back to that sense of what will people say about you at the end of your life. And he was reflecting very personally about his journey. You know, this is someone who is who made incredible steps for peace, incredible courage, but is also detested at home in Russia because of having done that. And, you know, that thoughtfulness I found pretty inspirational. I mean, gosh, how lucky is Charlie to have this book and, and to have you as a father. And I know you talk so eloquently and poignantly about your own family as well and the wonderful letters you found from your grandfather when he was stationed abroad too. So I let others look into the book for that. But I want to um, think more about education because it's so pertinent to what you're doing right now. Again, from your book, Jack Ma, you, you have him quoted as saying, you know, when he gets students out of university, he has to retrain them. Why does he have to retrain them? Um, so, you know, looking for the curriculum of the future and thinking about you being at Oxford University, you're taking in a certain calibre of student from the world. You're taking in students from the world and you want to take in the Zainabs of the world. But how can you do that? How can you take in this disparate group of people from different backgrounds? And you really want to take in people from different backgrounds, but they have to be able to cope with the pounding of the work as well because it's tough how do you do that how do you kind of make an equal playing field yeah. for the world it is a challenge um, and I think we've done really well in recent years particularly at Oxford and my college Hartford 
has a real focus on taking kids from less advantaged backgrounds. And so we do a lot of work at, to even the playing field to try and make sure that the interviews are actually about potential rather than just academic attainment. How do you do that? It's very, very hard. I mean, really, you're, you're looking for curious brains. So you're looking for people who can kind of unpack a problem. Uh, you're looking often for people who aren't too coached when they come in, too varnished, you know. And my hope is that we can extend that uh, attitude, that approach to international students who are less advantaged as well. And sometimes that will mean going back further in the process and actually supporting them at an earlier point in their academic development. Because once, by the time you get to the Oxford interview, as you say, you know, it's kind of do or die, it's really, really tough. You're sat there with some of the smartest professors in the world who are really going to challenge you. So you want them to be able to, to really show what they can do at that point. You want to try and level the playing field as much as possible. And that does mean investing in, the, in, in education prior to that, getting that right as well. But ultimately, you know, if we do that well, then we'll find the smartest people on the planet. And we have an interest in getting those kids into education because they're the ones who are going to crack these massive challenges that we've left them with. And with everything that you've written and discovered from your research as well about the necessary curriculum for the future, is Oxford doing anything to put that in place? Well, actually... Coincidentally, uh, when I go back from here, uh, it will be the end of term. This is the last week of term uh, in Oxford. Everyone is exhausted and kind of collapsing, as, as they always do at this stage of term. But a bunch of my students at Hartford are staying on for two weeks, and we're doing the first ever Head, Hand and Hartford course. So I'll be teaching for two weeks, which I haven't done for a few years now. Uh, you know, I'm not an academic. I don't have a teaching role at Oxford. Uh, but we'll be trying to put some of these lessons into practice. Uh, and the first thing we'll do on that very first Monday, just as I did with the students from NYU, is get my students to write the curriculum. What is it they actually want to learn? I'm hoping that they'll tell me they want to write, they want to learn about how to find purpose, how to be curious, how to be kind, how to be brave, how to take back control, how to be an activist, all the things I'm writing about in the book. If they tell me something else, I'm in big trouble. How wonderful that you can do that. But you have another lovely quote. The Greeks believed that a society grows great when old men plant trees in whose shade they know they shall never sit. Yeah. And it's also, it, it makes me think about the Japanese story where the old men went in and tried yeah. to help out because they knew when they got the cancer from the nuclear explosion, they would be dead. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of people, you know, we talk a lot about this being 21st century education, developing these sorts of skills. Actually, this is the original education, this first century education, that this sense that we used to have as humans that we need to think several generations ahead, that we need to make the world around us safer for, you know, there's, the, the Chinese talk sometimes about seven generations. You know, what are we doing now? It's that idea of planting those trees. What are we doing now to deal with this inherited injustice and inequality and to make the world safer? And the... You know, we talk a lot about, you know, do we take down statues now of people who did bad things in the past? Will people be ripping down our statues? Because, you know, I flew here today. You know, will they be, will my great-great-great-grandchildren say, I can't believe that my great-great-great-great-grandfather was flying to Luxembourg and using up all that carbon and, you know. But I know that you try not to fly when you can help it. I do. I do. And, and, and you know, we're, we want... At Hartford College, we want to be the first college to go completely net zero, which we're going to try and get there by 2030. And we're switching away from gas and we're reducing the flights and uh, offsetting and changing the way we eat and so on. But, you know, the, the reality is that we 
have been too slow as a generation. You know, we know that uh, to to adapt this massive challenge. And I think future generations will hold us to account for that. What can we do to become good ancestors? So I think the the great dividing line of the 21st century is basically, are we going to coexist? And coexist means being open to other ideas, other people. That's where the kind of ingenuity and curiosity really thrives. That's where we get stuff done. That's where the magic really is. Or do we think that the answer to the 21st century is to build a bigger wall around us? What Donald Trump thinks, it's what extremists in the Middle East think, it's what extremists in Europe think uh, as well, that we just have to separate ourselves more, that somehow life was better before this interaction with other people, with other cultures. Uh, And that's the great dividing line. And I think we all have to decide which side of that dividing line we're on. In a way, that's diplomacy. And it's why I'm now in education, because education for me is upstream diplomacy. You know, you mentioned earlier on Northern Ireland, and I went to this one amazing event on peace and reconciliation. And uh, a woman was there, and she was about to speak on, on her experiences. And I said, so why are you here? You know, I was being an ambassador, walking around, kind of making small talk with everyone. And she said, well, I'm here because my father was killed in a terrorist attack. And I was obviously, you know, speechless. You know, what do you say, really? You kind of just mumble something. So I turned to the guy next to her and said, and you, sir, why, why are you here? And he said, I was the bomber. I was the person who killed her father. And they were going around together, promoting ways to live together, promoting reconciliation, making the case for seeing past the difficult history they shared, healing the wounds of that history. Uh, and I think ultimately that's what it means to be a good ancestor. You know, that that's basically what diplomats have been trying to do since the first prehistoric person, I don't know if it was a man or a woman, persuaded the other prehistoric people to put down their clubs for a moment and go hunting together rather than fighting for resource. You know, we have these two instincts, survival of the fittest or to collaborate for resource. And ultimately it's that coexistence which I think makes us good ancestors. So that is what I would hope that people would take from the book. I can't help but think about Putin. We started talking about Ukraine and Russia. It's literally on our doorstep. We feel it very much here in Luxembourg. We're only a couple of countries away and we have so many people from those countries living here in Luxembourg. If you had a chance to sit down with Putin, do you think he is trying to be a good ancestor for the Russian people in his own mind? Because he probably thinks he is, but how would you try to change that mindset? That's a great question. A really, really difficult one. I I think on one level, he does think that he's doing the right thing for the Russian people. He's driven by this sense that Russian pride has been hit badly in the last few decades and that Russia's been treated unfairly and that Russia needs a certain amount of space around it in order to to exist and to, to thrive. And he probably also doesn't want Ukraine to join NATO for his own sense of safety. Yeah, he, he really wants to push back against that sense that the West is coming in his direction that the West is more magnetic, let's be honest. You know, it's not just the West pushing in that direction, it's countries like Ukraine wanting to move towards the West because they don't like the system that they see, the repressive system that they see uh, in Russia. You know, you mentioned the restrictions on freedom that, that they experience. So I think on one level he, he is driven uh, deep down by that sense. I, you know, I would really try to, to get him to reflect on on whether he's really acting in the interest of Russians when he's sending young kids across the border to fight, when he's destroying the economy, dividing families. 
you know, it'll take Russia years, decades to recover from economic sanctions. You know, his successors are going to have to rebuild their relationship with the, the rest of the world because of what he's doing to Russia. So I suppose I would try to have that conversation with him. Uh, you know, I don't know whether you'd get through. I suspect not. You know, someone asked me recently whether you could teach Donald Trump empathy. You know, if he went on one of these courses that I'm trying to do on emotional intelligence, whether I suspect some of these men, and they do tend to be men, I'm afraid, uh, are probably beyond beyond learning that level of emotional <laughs> intelligence, I'm afraid. I will leave it there. I'm not going to comment on that. I have many thoughts and uh, and I have a few books that uh, have certain titles that would make me think there are some people that are unchangeable. But we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, Tom, for your time. Welcome to Luxembourg. Thank you. We hope you can return. We hope you can talk about education and many, many more things beside. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Lisa. Brilliant. The Lisa Burke Show. Hello and welcome back to the Lisa Burke Show. Now following on from Nicola Steil and Duncan Roberts last week where we spoke about the Luxembourg City Film Festival, we're going to continue in that vein today with Guy de Leiden, CEO of Film Fund Luxembourg. Now the Film Fund is an official government organisation in charge of promoting, developing and financing the country's film industry. It's also one of the main partners of the Luxembourg City Film Festival and is in charge of the VR for Virtual Reality Pavilion that runs at Neumünster until March 13th. Welcome, Guy. Hello, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. And I'm going to start off with a public apology for my dog, because as you pointed out before I pressed record, the last time we met was in a wonderful forest between Steinzel and Priedel, where I was out walking my Weimarana and she jumped on you. And um, I am extremely sorry about that. No worries. All good. All good. You don't have to kill the dog. Not yet, anyways. Thank you. I will keep her more under control when you go for your jogs. Now, well, let's talk about this VR pavilion and uh, the VR cinema at Neumünster. So, um, as you said, we're running as Filmfront Luxembourg, we're running the uh, VR pavilion now in the framework of the festival for now five years. We started at a casino on a smaller scale and then we developed moved over to Neumünster. Why? Because we need uh, simply needed space to put all the installations that we want to show to the Luxembourg public. Because we decided a few years ago that we should not only finance traditional cinema works or television shows or documentaries or animations, whatever, but that we have to go with the time and that we have to support also the new developments in digital uh, uh, evolution. That meant that we... Um, giving financing to uh, VR or AR production uh, uh, works. And out of this, you also have to showcase them. And I think that's something like the uh, like the festival offers a fabulous opportunity to showcast um, VR or XR uh, works, not only from Luxembourg, but uh, best out of uh, uh, the international uh, works as well. And that's what we're doing. We have 10... Uh, installations in Neumünster plus five uh, 360 uh, films that we uh, show to the to the public. I love the way you say films. I can see that you have an Irish influence there in your English. Yeah, yeah unfortunately, <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's, I can hear it coming out. But but we're sticking to the the VR theme and your work with film and everything that you observe and the fast changing world of film. It's very interesting that you say that VR is becoming a major part of film in general. 
Yeah, I like the way you say a major part of film because it is. I I always say, and people are a little uh, 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 a bit curious about that. But I think that VR is nothing, and it's not an end in itself. So it is an evolution to something different, and it is part of something else. So that's why we think that it will change quite a lot in the future. There will be huge developments, and we as Luxembourg, we want to be part of these developments. It's like saying you're standing there waiting for the for the train, and you don't want to miss the train. You want to be in the uh, in the locomotive. You want to be to 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 move along with everybody, you know, and that's what we want to do. And that's why we see evolutions here, and that's why we're trying to showcase also uh, uh, works from different angles. And nowadays, what is uh, interesting and, and important is that it is not only the um, installations that we picked are not only uh, technical uh, gimmicks. You know, it's not only that you put yourself into this headset and you see the, the best of music, the best of image or the best of colors, but it is a mixture of everything. And what we liked this year, especially put a focus on, was uh, narrative storytelling. So all the, all the installations that we picked have a interesting story and that's why they are also very long so most of them are 30 25 35 45 even 50 minutes so it is a challenge to sit in an headset for 50 minutes but if the program is interesting so time time will, will fly the headsets can be quite heavy sometimes yeah, but that that depends if you have an, a small hat. Yeah, but I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't <laughs> have that problem. Yeah, you're right. I was thinking about sitting there for 15 minutes with something heavy on my head. Um, so effectively, what you're saying is you're using this technology as a tool, but not an end in itself. No, no, definitely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And tell us um, when you set this up and you've seen it now over five years. What's the age range of people who come to look at this and use it? It's a complete mixture That's of good. people from every uh, every every ages. You know, usually you s might think that oh, that's a thing for for the younger generations, but it's not true. You know, it depends on. Of course, you have there is this uh, wall that you have to uh, to overclimb because you think that um, putting on a headset is not done for everybody, or the people might be afraid. But also the elder generations try it because why because of the quality of the story we, we when i might talk about one uh, uh, or pick one of these uh, installations it's called end of night and it tells the story about a jew who flew in a boat during the second world war and he went from denmark over to uh, to sweden uh, uh, and you follow this story for 50 minutes. You're sitting in a boat, you're watching the, the story, and that's a story that is attractive for, for everybody, for all ages. You know, especially only, nowadays. And especially nowadays. So the, the, the mixture in uh, that we found is a mixture that is of interest to all the generations, and we can see that at, uh, at Neumannster. They are not only, of course, we have school classes, Karolina Markiewicz and Pascal Piron, our uh, Luxembourg uh, artist, they came in with school classes, so there you see the younger generations, but you can also see at the weekend uh, people of an, uh, of an older age. And then I want to make the distinction that you have on offer, which is VR Cinema versus VR To Go. 
at Neumünster. Yeah, but in a VR cinema, it's, you know, you have to, on the one hand side, you have the installations where you have interaction as well. You know, you have to, your joysticks and you can uh, uh, interact. And then you have this VR cinema, which is classical films, but filmed in 360 degrees. So you sit on a rotating chair, you move around and you see you're inside the film and you can see everything that's happening. So what we've done with our friends, because this whole pavilion is put together by our friends in Montreal from a, a cultural center in Montreal. And they launched during the um, pandemic, they launched an initiative called VR2Go. So you get a headset at Neumünster for 20 euros. All the other installations, by the way, are free. But when you take the headset home with you, you have to pay 20 euros and you can keep it for three or four days. You can show it to your use it at home. It's extremely simple to use you only have to plug it in put a headset on and you can watch the, the different movies and that's what is our initiative vr to go so you can take the headset with the films home watch them at home with the family and bring it back afterwards that was developed during the pandemic because at the time when the cultural institutions were closed nobody had access to it but we wanted to bring culture to the people and that's why we adopted this uh, this initiative uh, developed in montreal that's such a good idea. And we've had so many technological developments because of COVID. Absolutely. It's been a yeah, wonderful, yeah. wonderful thing. Um, so I wanted to ask you then, what's next for the Luxembourg film industry? I know you always have a, a wonderful show at Cannes, for instance. Oh, <laughs> Cannes in uh, in May. We currently didn't think of uh, Cannes so far because we're quite busy with the uh, the festival at, uh, at the moment, not only because of the VR pavilion, but there were, and I think your guests from, uh, your last guest, Nicholas and Duncan, uh, uh, probably spoke about uh, the, the, the Luxembourg films at uh, this year's festival, not only the um, co-productions, uh, international co-productions, but also uh, uh, productions done by Luxembourg directors and short films. So there was a, a huge showcase on the Luxembourg industry this time. And afterwards, we're going to look what will come out of Cannes. Maybe there will be some uh, good uh, surprises, we hope. Of course, there are films out that could be selected, but you never know. You never know what, because it's not, we can only ask them to consider our films, you know, but it's on the, on the jury in Cannes to decide if they accept it. But last year, we had three films in official selection, which is a huge number for a country like Luxembourg. Because don't forget that in Europe, larger Europe, there are roughly 3,000, 3,500 films that are done every year. We do 17, 18 in Luxembourg. So to get three out of those. You get three out of those, so you know, I have to bow in front of the of the industry. So what people create in Luxembourg is, uh, is top quality. That's wonderful. Guy, thank you so much. We're going to have you back to talk more about the Luxembourg film industry and how people can get in touch with the work that you do at the Film Fund because it's incredibly broad and very, very deeply interesting. So I hope you and all of our listeners can enjoy this weekend, the VR weekend. There's a lot going on and hopefully the sunshine will continue. Thank you everyone for tuning in once more. I hope you have a wonderful weekend, whether that be at the film festival or indeed at the spring break which is also happening this weekend at Lux Expo. Do keep in touch and as always, have a fantastic weekend ahead. Thank you. Thank you. RTL Original Podcast.